Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. The episode you are about to hear is an old version, recorded when I was first starting out. As you can imagine, the audio quality and narrative structure is not quite up to the standard I'm now capable of. I am currently working my way through the older episodes to update them and correct any issues. In the meantime, if you experience any audio problems, say the volume of advertising, or just general blips, please let me know via email. You can contact the show at egyptpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop me a line. I'm always happy to chat. That's enough from me. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. The Egyptian History Podcast by Dominic Perry. Episode 6, The Ram God Protects Him. Welcome back. When we left the podcast last week, King Seneferu had just completed his third and final monument, the Red Pyramid of Dashur. Towering over the western skyline just south of Saqqara, the world's first true pyramid was complete. Entombed within its subterranean burial chamber, Seneferu's body was protected so that his soul might fly forth towards the west, there to unite with Ray and ascend to the heavens, joining him in his journey across the sky in the daytime and through the underworld at night. Sneferu's son was a man of approximately twenty when he came to the throne. Picking a name, like many of his predecessors, that invoked a deity, he called himself Knum Khufu, meaning Knum protects him. Knum was an ancient deity, one of the primeval gods I introduced in episode one, residing at the unknown source of the Nile, which even today remains somewhat mysterious. Knum was said to have fashioned humanity from Nile mud, and was known principally as a potter, fashioning all manner of beings from mud. Knum was therefore a creator god in the classic sense. Khufu, coming to the throne with very big plans, fancied himself something of a creator as well. Invoking Knum's protection and blessing, he could embark on one of the most audacious building projects of all time. Moving his burial place north of Memphis to an area known as Giza, west of modern Cairo, Khufu ordered his architect, Hemi Unu, to lay out the largest monument Egypt had ever seen. More than 200 metres long on each side, which is 750 feet for my American listeners, and 146 metres high, 481 feet, the Great Pyramid of Khufu was unlike anything Sneferu had ever dreamed up. And it was going to be perfect, like best pyramid ever. So, Hemiunu needs to design a perfect monument. How does he align it? There are two ways he can do it. First, by measuring the movement of stars at night time, he can accurately pinpoint north and south. Or, he can do this by measuring the movement of the sun at daytime, using a pole and observing the movement of its shadow. Now which method they chose is unknown to us, though later Egyptian texts do refer to founding temples in accordance with the striding of Ray, suggesting a daytime measurement. Following this, using simple tools but reasonably advanced geometry, Hemiunu measures out the size of the pyramid, and ensures that each corner is at an exact right angle. His tools were no more complex than a right-angled ruler, pieces of string, and some straight rods, but with that the Egyptians were able to accomplish things greater than you or I tend to do with our smartphones. Makes you think, doesn't it? Next, the foundations had to be laid. This was done by means of a stone platform laid on top of the bedrock, which, try as one might, was difficult to make perfectly level with the bronze tools available at the time. 
Large blocks of high-quality limestone were chiselled and scraped until they could be placed in a smooth, flat foundation layer. This foundation layer was an architectural first for a pyramid, and was probably motivated by the disasters at Meidum and the Bent Pyramid. Khufu wanted a monument to dwarf all others. His architect, Hemiunu, knew that to pull that off without a hitch, the fundamental accuracy of the monument had to be assured before the construction even began. But then the real work did begin. The first layer was easy enough. One simply hauled the stones up and put them in place. But once the levels began to accumulate, how could you get the stones up? The solution, as you may know, was the construction of large earthen ramps using a combination of limestone, gypsum, sand and clay that the Egyptians manufactured enormous ramps that could be used to haul stones up to the top of the pyramid. Now how these ramps were laid out does remain something of a debated topic. Many solutions have been proposed, from a single long ramp running perpendicular to the pyramid's side, to ramps that wind around the outside and up to the top, to ramps that zigzag up one or more sides. For my own money, I'd suggest that a single long ramp running perpendicular to the pyramid, or a single ramp running around the outside, is probably the closest to reality. Multiple ramps may have been used, but the zigzag idea, or the use of an internal ramp, seems far more complex than would be necessary for the monument. If you're building a pyramid this big, you want the access way to be relatively easy to build, easy to maintain, and easy to remove. An external ramp is the most likely, and allows for all the important casing stones to be laid down before the ramp is dismantled. Surveys of the Giza pyramids in the 1990s noted that several pyramids had layers of stone that protrude slightly from their expected placement. The suggestion, put forth by the head of that survey, Mark Lehner, was that the occasional out-of-place layers are intentionally placed to allow a ramp to be built on top of them. So as far as archaeological evidence goes, maybe the external ramp theory now has some solid backup evidence. Moving on from this, Hemiuna's overseers get to work organizing the thousands of laborers needed for the job. Approximately 20 to 30,000 men worked on the Great Pyramid throughout the year, organized into groups of 20, which were collected together into a file of 200, which were given names such as the Great File, the Green File, the Asiatic File, and the Last File. These files, which are spelt P-H-Y-L-E, were the standard division for men in the group, akin to a pair of centuries in the Roman Legion. Five files, a thousand men, were grouped together into a gang with names like the Drunkards of Mancaure, which is tagged in graffiti within the chambers of the Great Pyramid. The files were probably formal administrative names, but it's hard to imagine a royal scribe coming up with Drunkards as an appropriate gang name so we can assume that to some extent these are colloquial traditions among the workers. It seems essentially that labourers throughout history share one thing in common, an overwhelming fondness for beer. Now the drunkards were just one of the hundreds of gangs who would have worked in the Giza region during this time. Each pyramid would have had its uniquely named gangs, probably tied to the name of the pharaoh ruling at the time. Leading them were the overseers, who saw to it that each block was taken from the barges on the Nile, up the ramp, and into place at the top of the pyramid. Far from the biblical image of cruel men with whips, the overseers seem to have been relatively indistinguishable from the labourers as far as social status goes, though of course they were a bit higher in the pecking order. The labourers themselves came from the rural farmland of Egypt. Throughout the year, but particularly during the period of the Nile flood, the land had plenty of men for whom growing crops was a way of life. But farms only require so many people to maintain them, 
so despite the limits on population, there were doubtlessly men for whom work was a more transitory thing. A man might go from one job to another throughout the year, and work on the pyramid was actually one of the more steady gigs, not to mention a prestigious one. For farmers working the field, the Nile flooding was a time when not much work could be done after the harvest had been counted. But, with every harvest, there was an expectation that the tax collectors would be visiting soon, and a farmer working on the pyramid during the flood could expect to see his tax burden reduced substantially for the coming year. I say all this for two reasons. Firstly, so that we understand at a more fundamental level the sort of men who came to work on the pyramids. Fond of beer, physically tough enough to endure hours of continuous labour under a hot sun, and liable to endure some kind of injury that could possibly mean lifelong disfigurement or disability, these chaps had a tough life during those three months that they served on the pyramid each year. It's important to remember that, for all the beauty and grandeur of these monuments, they are built on the backs of small men who left no mark in history beyond their contributions to the monument. Secondly, I feel it worth dispelling the myth that the pyramids were built by slaves. It is a common misconception among the public that the pyramids were erected by captives and prisoners, particularly Jewish ones. It must be noted that there is almost zero evidence for this. The workers were housed in modest but comfortable conditions, and were actually buried near to the pyramid in individual graves, rather than the mass graves you'd expect if dealing with slaves. It is highly likely, of course, that some of the people working the pyramid had been captured during raids against Nubia or Libya, but these would have been far fewer than the real Egyptians working on the monument. Now a man's contribution to the pyramid was not merely for the benefit of decreased tax. It also earned him special regard when it came time to approach the underworld. A man's soul, who gave testimony on his life when he arrived at eternal judgment, could note with pride that he was a stalwart worker who gave the sweat of his brow in service of the king. In so doing, he could be assured that his place in the paradise which was Osiris' kingdom was secure, and that he would live an afterlife of significantly greater comfort than his earthly one. Talk about banking it all on a promise. So after a few years of this intense work, the pyramid is beginning to take on its general shape. The bottom layers, which are the largest in every dimension, would have taken the longest, and they carry the bulk of the pyramid's total volume of stone. This would have taken a long time, and progress may have seemed to be slow at first. But once that halfway point had been reached, it really was a process that steadily picked up speed. Now the men working on the pyramid were housed in an enormous city to the south of the plateau. Stretching across a good square kilometre or more, the pyramid city was divided into a well-ordered administrative section and a more spontaneous sprawl of urban domestic areas. Let's start with the administration section. Known as the gallery complex, this area is laid out on either side of a single wide street. It contains four sets of galleries, which are long rectangular rooms lined up in rows of ten, housed within a single building. The exact purpose of these has not been fully discussed, but they seem to have been a combination of scribal workshops, where deliveries were catalogued, accounted and recorded, and semi-permanent storage areas. To the southeast of the galleries lies the Royal Administrative Building, a fancy name for what is essentially a walled compound that may have been the location for the royal residence overseeing the project. For as much as Hemiunu was in charge of the layout, organisation and design of the pyramid complex, it was the royal overseers who took responsibility for following through and producing the actual monument itself. Likewise, it was they who had to ensure the pyramid town was organised and run effectively, so that the king's great tomb could be assured of a successful completion. 
Outside the administrative area was the township itself. This was as much a spontaneous growth as it was an organised one. At least, that's the suggestion given by the layout, which is far more haphazard than the gallery complex in which the administration took place. Now the town is partially buried under modern suburbs of Cairo, but what has been uncovered is pretty much the sort of material to expect from a domestic environment in ancient Egypt. Pots, bread-making jars, cooking utensils, amulets, figurines of deities, food, beer jars, all the things you might look for in a domestic setting. The presence of women is a certainty. While the heavy manual labour on the pyramids was mostly done by men, by which I mean exclusively, the women of the pyramid town were involved heavily in the cottage industries of rope making, beer brewing, food preparation, weaving, and so forth. All of these things had a heavy female component, and there were probably no shortage of that oldest of professions wandering around the encampment either. Many of the men who came to the pyramid were farmers, and their wives would have had to stay home to ensure the family farm was maintained. While the cat's away, I have no doubt that some of these lonely men played. The enormous bakeries in the village suggest food production on a scale to feed thousands, which makes sense, but men cannot live on bread and beer alone. Indeed, meat was brought in from all over Egypt, and the number of animal bones from goats and cattle that have turned up in the excavation suggests that an absolutely huge amount of meat was being imported and consumed every day. Chances are the workers had some kind of rotation system. They couldn't have all had meat every day, but it seems fairly reasonable to suggest they had meat at least a couple of times a week. This would be necessary for the amount of intense physical labour they were doing. Protein was simply absolutely essential. And the amount of faunal remains is simply too high for them to have been the starving, whipped men of Hollywood fantasy. Now don't mistake me, the Egyptians worked very hard to build the pyramids. But I hope I've made it clear that the common man in this project, while he put himself at danger of broken bones or infections that could easily lead to death, was not necessarily mistreated. The work was difficult, the hours were long, and the conditions were third world by modern standard, but the administration took care to feed the means sufficiently, to ensure their needs were met in the village, and that they lacked for none of the basic necessities of life during their time at the worksite. But what about if they didn't make it? Life was short, no two ways about it. The answer is simply that those men who died during their service at Giza were granted a very rare privilege. They were buried in small graves to the west of the domestic area and south of the plateau itself, within sight of the great tombs rising towards the sky. This was an incredible honour, and even though it seems like a hollow honour, they were dead after all, because this king wanted such a large monument, it's probably a reasonable bet that many of these people would have been totally psyched if that they had to die, they got to be close to this demigod's tomb. The king was, indeed, a near demigod by this point. There's absolutely no denying it now. When he died, he was going to the stars to unite with Ray and join him in his journey across the sky. Everyone else was going to a reasonably nice afterlife, but no one, except the king, got to join Ray. Perhaps you remember the scene in the film The Lion King, where the protagonist, Simba, is stargazing with his pals Timon and Pumbaa debating what the stars actually are. Simba suggests that the great kings of the past live among the stars, looking down upon the world and the current ruler, guiding him. It's a little rough around the edges, but it's actually pretty close to what the Egyptians seem to have believed happened to the king upon death. Indeed, it is this principle of ascension and unification with the gods that underlay the religious principles behind pyramid construction. 
A lot is made of the fact that the Giza pyramids supposedly line up perfectly with the constellation of Orion at certain times of the year, and that this is fundamentally tied into the Egyptian perceptions of the afterlife. Orion is equated with Osiris, and the layout of the three Giza pyramids, two in alignment, one off-center, reflects the constellation of Orion's belt. For those familiar with astronomy, you'll know that the sky is not static. The alignment of stars that we see tonight is not the same as that seen 100 years ago, much less 4,000. While the sky can be measured based on our knowledge of constellation movement, we can't prove that at the time these monuments were being built that Orion somehow lined up perfectly with the Giza pyramids. You can draw a line between A and B pretty easily, especially when dealing with the stars. Remember, these pyramids were built over a period of at least 60 years. The sky would have changed in that time alone. So we can't say for sure that the surveyors had Orion in mind when they placed the Great Pyramid. I suspect not, because given the way the plateau of Giza raises above the Nile Valley, the ground available for pyramid construction is limited by sloping regions on all sides. The pyramids are far more likely to have been built where they could be stable, rather than according to some esoteric astronomical connection. Still, you never know. It could be that, such construction having been made, the connection was noticed by later Egyptian astronomers and began to be incorporated into the religious literature. Certainly the pyramid texts, a corpus of religious literature from the late 5th and 6th dynasties, incorporate some references to the king's unification with Osiris. If you're the sort of person who equates Orion and Osiris, maybe this is indicative. I must admit that I'm sceptical on the connection. It strikes me as the sort of thing that is far more likely to have occurred after the pyramids were built than being a conscious element of their construction. For one thing, the pyramids of Giza entirely lack any hieroglyphic inscriptions on their walls. They are utterly bare, and the same is true for every royal pyramid up to the reign of Unas in the 5th dynasty, from which period on they do appear in every pyramid. But Unas came over a century after the Giza pyramids were completed. We can't assume that what they believed in his own time was necessarily the same as what they believed in Khufu's. To sum that up, because I wandered around a bit there, I'll say this. The idea that the pyramids of Giza have an astronomical link with Orion is tentative at best. The later Egyptian theologies definitely made a connection between Osiris, sometimes equated with Orion, and the king's ascension to celestial godhood. The connection may be based on later observations that the pyramids seem to reflect Orion's belt, but it could easily be a coincidence which we have later made sound much more meaningful than it really was. For those of you wondering why I have not yet begun to read much in the way of Fourth Dynasty religious literature, as I've said that I intend to do with the podcast, the answer is quite simple. There isn't much that survives. As we continue and reach the end of the 5th dynasty, my sources will begin to expand in regards to this, and also in the form of personal biographies and testaments. By the time we reach the end of the Old Kingdom, there will be a large body of literature to draw from, and this will increase even further in the Middle Kingdom. But for now, I must focus on the more earthly concerns, such as pyramid building and royal activity, because at this period, over 4,000 years ago, this is the only evidence that really survives. If you are interested in literature and theology, Don't worry, that stuff is coming. Chapter 2 To recap the episode thus far, the Great Pyramid of Khufu is well underway. Ten years on from its beginning, the pyramid is reaching towards great heights, and the workers in their town are beginning to leave more and more material remains of their domestic lifestyle. The king, in his palace at Memphis, visits the site occasionally to see the progress, 
and in the meantime continues to govern according to the responsibilities he is endowed with. To maintain cosmic order and balance, he makes offerings at the major temple in the capital, especially the temple of Tar, the patron god of craftsmen and home industry. One of the largest temples in the region, the temple of Tar, dominates the Memphite area, and if you remember back to our storytelling in episode 1, Tar is one of the major deities in the mythologies of creation. Old Kingdom rulers, as focused as they were on feats of architectural engineering, naturally gave generously to the cult of Tar in order to ensure the deity's blessing and encouragement in the manner of monumental construction. But across the river at Heliopolis, which is now the part of Cairo in which the presidential palace is located, was a temple to the solar god Re. Growing in importance and relevance for the kingship as a concept, the priesthood of Re forms the primary body from which came the religious functionaries who will operate the king's mortuary temples. In future episodes, we will see their influence expand to the point that temples to Re began to be built within the royal necropolis, sharing a theological and economic connection with the temples dedicated to the king's funerary cult. At Giza, these temples do not appear. The necropolis was not dominated solely by the king, however. As we have seen, a large cemetery for the workers and overseers dominates the southern area of the Giza region. But directly to the west of the Great Pyramid is a large cemetery of mastaba tombs. If you remember, mastabas were among the earliest form of monumental tombs. Shaped like large rectangular benches, the mastabas at Giza entombed the hundreds of high officials and family members who were close to the king and earned his favour. Among the burials are viziers, treasury officials, officials responsible for public works, granaries, and the justice system. The vast majority of these men are also referred to as royal scribes, demonstrating the importance of a literate education among the royal family and the families are called upon to serve in the state bureaucracy. In a world where literacy was probably less than 5% of the population, the ability of a man to read and write could bring him great wealth and standing. If that man happened to be of a family with marriage or blood ties to the royal family, then he was pretty much set for life. A good posting could be confidently expected, and if he administered effectively, with good obedience to royal will and just behaviour, then the man could be assured that he would be rewarded with a tomb in close proximity to that of the king. Now there are numerous photos of this cemetery on the podcast website, which I have changed, and I will discuss this at the end of the episode. There is no overall plan or order of precedence to the nobles' tombs. Officials from later reigns have shoved their own tombs in closer to the pyramid than their predecessors, but those from Khufu's reign seem to have been buried in a first-come, first-serve order. They are beautiful tombs, many of them, but remain closed to the public. So finally one day, the king is informed that his tomb is nearing completion. The pyramid itself has been finished, and the burial chamber within it has been readied for the burial. Unique among all pyramids, Khufu's burial chamber is not located underneath the pyramid in the bedrock, but within the core of the masonry. To reach it, you must ascend a lengthy and steep series of passages, in airless, overheated conditions, to a peak directly under the pyramid's centre. It's an amazing work of engineering, and is sustained by a large series of triangular relieving chambers above. These chambers, which are separated with enormous slabs of limestone, disperse the weight of the stone to either side of the burial chamber ensuring that the ceiling does not collapse and crush the king's sarcophagus. Beneath the burial chamber is the second chamber, often referred to as the queen's chamber. It's unclear if anyone was ever actually buried in here, or if it is simply an earlier burial chamber that was then abandoned for one higher up. 
Unfortunately, it is closed to the public, and I have not yet visited it. Maybe one day I'll get enough influence with the Supreme Council of Antiquities to get inside. When I do, I'll update you. At any rate, the Great Pyramid was completed about twenty years after its inception, according to the traditional sources. Abutting the east face of the pyramid was a mortuary temple, where offerings could be made for the soul of the king. From here extended a long walkway of limestone, down to the waterfront, where another temple rested on the shore. From here, the priests would disembark from their boat, travel up the causeway, and into the holy sanctum of the king's statue. The statue was anointed, dressed in fine clothes, and offered foods, so that the soul of the king could find nourishment in its travels throughout the sky with Ray. At the same time, hymns to Ray and the king would be sung, while incense was burned in the air. Imagine a Catholic mass, but way more elaborate, and you probably have the general idea. The rituals themselves I want to save for next week. The reign of Khafre, a son of Khufu, offers us a far greater opportunity to discuss these rituals, for his pyramid complex was blessed with a unique feature, a monument of mystery and strange symbolism that still stimulates great debate today. The great sphinx of Khafre will be our subject next week as we continue our tale of the fourth dynasty. Hello listeners, Dominic here. This is an epilogue recorded in 2020. The episode you just heard is somewhat out of date historically. I wrote it in 2012, and since then there have been remarkable discoveries relating to the reign of Khufu. In 2013, archaeologists announced a remarkable find. A team of French and Egyptian excavators working near the Red Sea stumbled on an ancient Egyptian diary. Fragments of papyrus covered with writing recorded the duties of a man named Merer. Merer lived during the reign of Khufu, around 2560 BCE. This man worked on the Great Pyramid. Merer was a low-ranking official, one that we call an inspector, or sechej. He managed a team of stonemasons and labourers working in the quarries to extract stone for Khufu's pyramid. Merer and his team helped build that monument, and while they worked, Merer kept a daily record of his activities. In the process, he created Egypt's oldest diary, and gave us our best record of the ancient building process. Merer's daily journal records the activities of a work team quarrying stone for the Great Pyramid. This team worked at Tura, a quarry site on the east bank of the Nile River. Tura was the source for beautiful, high-quality limestone. These blocks would go on the pyramid's sides and form the outer shell of the monument. Tura limestone is lovely, bright and smooth, and this stone would be the face of the Great Pyramid. So Merer and his team had an important job, and thanks to the discovery of this diary, their work lives forever. As part of his job, the inspector Merer recorded the following activities. Quote, Day 25. The inspector Merer spends the day with his team hauling stones in Tura South. He spends the night at Tura South. Day 26. Inspector Merer casts off with his team from Tura South. Their boat, loaded with stones, sailed for the horizon of Khufu, aka the Great Pyramid. They spent the night at the Lake of Khufu. Day 27. The team set sail from the Lake of Khufu, sailing towards the horizon of Khufu, the Great Pyramid. 
the boat was loaded with stone and spent the night at the horizon of Khufu. Day 28. Casting off from the horizon of Khufu in the morning and sailing upriver back towards Tura South. Day 29. Inspector Merer spends the day with his team hauling stones in Tura South. They spent the night at Tura South. Day 30. Inspector Merer spends the day with his team hauling stones in Tura South. Spending the night at Tura South. End quote. This slightly repetitious diary records the fascinating process of delivering stone for the pyramid. Merer and his team quarried at Tura, then loaded the blocks onto boats and delivered it to the Giza Plateau. Every five days or so, Merer and his team made a full round trip from the Tura quarry up to the Great Pyramid and back again. Along the way, they stopped at identifiable places. One, called the Lake of Khufu, was probably the harbour near to Giza, which has been identified recently. Then, they would sail to the pyramid itself, stopping at a place to unload the stones. Apparently, this delivery process took place overnight. They arrived one day and departed the next. Once the ship was empty, the team rowed back to Tura South and began the process again. Every four to five days, Merer and his team repeated this journey. Merer's diary is much more detailed than this tiny snippet. I will explore it fully when I get round to finishing the new, remastered version of episode 6. For now, I hope this gives a taste. And if you would like more, you can read the diary of Merer in English and Arabic right now. Follow the link in the episode description, or visit the website egyptianhistorypodcast.com to read Merer's diary for yourself. Thank you for listening. I'll see you on the next episode. May Ra and all of the gods bless you and your house. Music